0: The book of Proverbs opens with a brief preamble in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, which is followed by 12 introductory poems commending wisdom, 10 by the Father, and then two coming through the mouth, figuratively speaking, of woman wisdom. Here in chapter 5, we have another one of those poems, or fatherly talks, as David Atkinson refers to them. This one focused on the foolishness of adultery. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1, my son. Be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. The structure of this lecture or fatherly talk is fairly straightforward. The first two verses constitute a call for attentiveness. That's what we've just read. Then verses 3 to 6 provide a bit of helpful motivation. Verses 7 to 14 outline the folly of coloring outside the lines. Verses 15 to 20 commend the beauties of marital love. And then verses 21 to 23 round off the lecture with a stern warning about the danger of disregarding this foundational moral principle. The poem is specifically addressed to my son, and the content of the poem assumes that the young lad is old enough to experience sexual temptation and either is about to be married or is early on in his marriage. We imagine, therefore, a young man of 16 to 21 years of age. This is an important conversation for a father to have with a son of that age. Verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. In order to understand the content of this talk, we need, first of all, obviously, to identify this forbidden woman. Who are we talking about here? Most commentators seem to understand this as referring to a married woman. She is forbidden or off limits because she is married to someone else. So Alan P. Ross, for example, says here, Zerah is taken here, as in chapter seven, to be a married woman, an unchaste wife, quote. And so you'll see most modern versions of the Bible giving this entire chapter some kind of heading like warning against adultery, as per the ESV. Adultery is treated in the Bible as a maximally serious sin. It is immoral and it is unwise. It tends to create massive social and familial upheaval. We think of David's adultery with Bathsheba. It is like taking coals into your lap. No physical pleasure could adequately compensate you for the amount of chaos you are assuming through this action. That's the basic message here. Verses three to four provide a Hebrew version of the sort of proverbial wisdom that can be found in many cultures. In English, we say, honey is sweet, but the bee stings. The basic idea is that sexual immorality always overpromises. Sweet and seductive things may be said on the way down into that bit, but believe me, son, there will be a price to pay for those delicacies, and the price will almost certainly be more than you want to pay. Run away. The house of the unchaste woman is presented here as the gateway to hell, an illustration that works as well in our culture as it did in that one. The unchaste woman, the seductive wife next door, she isn't thinking about eternity. She isn't thinking about consequences even in the here and now. She only has one thing on her mind and you need to be smarter than that. You need to think about now and you need to think about later. You can't let your libido destroy your life and determine your eternity. Verse seven. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. So notice here again that what the father is saying to his son is generalized as applying to all sons. The Bible here is intentionally positioning this father-son dialogue as normative. This is what all fathers should be saying to their sons. If your dad isn't saying this to you, son, then you gather in. You listen to the father saying this to his son. This is a way of saying, this is what instruction in the ways of godly wisdom looks like. So dads, listen up. This is what you should be saying to your children and to your sons in particular. Verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed." And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. In verse 8 there, you see the Old Testament version of the Apostle Paul's counsel in 2 Timothy 2.22 to young Timothy, when he says, Flee youthful lusts, run away. Now, this may not strike us as particularly brave or noble but it is certainly wise. Part of what fathers need to communicate to sons is that when you're young, the battle with lust is really not a fair fight. The human brain is not fully developed until about the age of 24. And the part of the brain specifically that is underdeveloped in young people is that part that deals with predicting or anticipating likely consequences. Which is why lust seems so compelling to a 17-year-old boy. Why not eat the forbidden fruit? Why not enjoy that pleasure? Who's it hurting? Who's going to see? How could it possibly matter? Yeah, but here's the thing. It will hurt. It does cost. And it will matter more than you could possibly anticipate at this stage of your life. And, And that's what I mean by it not being a fair fight. Your brain at 17 struggles to marshal the intellectual arguments against immediate gratification. That applies to all pleasures. But when you throw in the intoxicating effect of sexual lust, then now you're basically a drunk teenager trying to make life decisions in a moment of intense temptation. To be perfectly honest with you, I'm not putting my money on you making the right choice in that situation. So don't put yourself in that situation. That's what the father's saying. Run away. If there's a woman on Main Street who's given you the eye, then find another way home. Because at this stage of your life, you can't trust yourself to make a good decision in that situation. Ten years from now, you probably hit that out of the park. But today, you're not going to be able to handle that heat, son. So run away. That's the counsel. And I think it works as well today as it did then. Now, in terms of translating this into some contemporary guidance, I think that means, at the very least, being... Careful, very careful with digital temptations. Moms and dads, handing a 15-year-old kid a smartphone with data is like handing him a hand grenade with the pin already pulled. When I was a 15-year-old boy, if you wanted to look at naked people, you had to go to the general store and ask the lady behind the counter to hand you a magazine from the covered display box. That took some moxie, and the sheer horror that conversation discouraged All but the most committed, if I can just put it that way. But now, those pictures are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week with the touch of a screen. There is no way our kids can handle that. So we need to create some distance. Now, whether that takes the form of a filter or or whether the control is more manual and direct, you do what you need to do, moms and dads, to keep your child out of an unfair fight. In our house, we did not let our children have TVs in their bedrooms, and then when smartphones came along, it took us a while to figure this out, but we insisted on low-tech in the bedroom. We even bought one of our kids an old-fashioned record player so that she could listen to music while falling asleep without having a phone beside her bed, because those are the most common objections. When we said we're gonna go low-tech in the bedroom, take the phones out of there, the kids were like, well, you know, I listen to music while I fall asleep, and uh, also, I need an alarm clock. Well, guess what? There's this tech called record player and there's this other tech called alarm clock. These things don't need to be connected to the internet. We don't need to put those tools inside a bedroom with a child and giving them access at all hours of the night when we're asleep to the worst horrors and most disgusting aspects of the universe. All I'm saying is this. Do what you need to do when your kids are young to level the playing field. No 15-year-old should be fighting grown-up battles against the devil on their own. In verses 9 to 14, the father makes the argument that giving in to sexual temptation results in a dissipation of strength and influence, like a fire hose with a hole in it. You will find yourself less powerful and less potent, spiritually, physically, and socially, as a result of failing to live within the lines. Now, Not to be overly literalistic here, but the massive spike in erectile dysfunction has been credibly linked to the spike in pornography use among young men, perfectly, though awkwardly, illustrating this principle. Dads, explain to your sons that if they want to have great sex, a great marriage, a strong prayer life, and honor in this life and the next, then they need to be careful not to expend their sexual energy randomly and aimlessly in the public square. They need to learn to channel that energy narrowly and exclusively within the confines of covenant marriage. And that's where the father turns now in verse 15. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son? With a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Doing that which is good is often part of how we protect ourselves against the temptation to do what is bad. Or, as Tremper Longman III puts it, the father encourages the idea that the best defense against committing adultery is a strong offense, reveling in the joys of marital sex. Quote. I think there's a lot of truth in that. We see the Apostle Paul adopting that same basic mindset in 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. And that's really quite a remarkable paragraph. We often associate Christianity with sexual prudishness. But here's the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago saying that husbands and wives should have a lot of sex. They can take a break for a day or two if they need to do a prayer retreat or something, but then once that's over, they need to come together again quickly lest they be tempted to sin. And it isn't just the men that are pictured here as needing regular sex, it's the women too. Paul says something here that no one else in the ancient world had ever said. He said that a woman had rights over her husband's body. Now, everyone in the ancient world would have said that a man has rights over his wife's body, and Paul says that too. But then the apostle Paul goes on to say, that goes both ways. Brothers and sisters, no one had ever said that before. And let me say to you, we would be better off in terms of our health and the well-being of our marriages if we listened more to Solomon and the Apostle Paul and less to what passes for wisdom in our culture. Now, of course, certain considerations and provisos need to be mentioned. The Bible talks about mutuality and generosity, but that is not a license to take or abuse. If a spouse is ill, or weak, or otherwise indisposed, the other partner needs to be considered. of that. What the Bible is calling for here is just enjoyment within the lines. As Raymond Van Leeuwen puts it, the opposition of adultery to married love concretely shows that sin and folly cross-created boundaries, while the play of eros within marriage illustrates freedom within form closed quote. Old Testament and new. That's what the Bible is commending. Freedom within form. Enjoy that which is life-giving and you'll be less inclined to go looking for meaning and pleasure in the gutter. Now, the reality in a fallen world is that this approach, wise as it is, will not guarantee that you won't have to go through seasons where your sex life isn't all that you might want it to be. So you still need to develop self-control. Your spouse is going to get ill. There may be travel. There may be other circumstances. So freedom within form combined with maturity and self-control represents a sustainable strategy with respect to sexuality. We should also mention here that this chapter reflects a view of marriage that includes and even prioritizes romantic love. That isn't to say that other considerations didn't come into play. It's just to say that the Bible certainly does not envision a business-like approach to marriage. Derek Kidner remarks upon that reality, saying, It is highly important to see sexual delight in marriage as God-given. And history confirms that when marriage is viewed chiefly as a business arrangement, not only is God's bounty misunderstood, but human passion seeks other outlets. Closed quote. Love matters. Romantic and sexual love matters. Marriage isn't just a practical arrangement. It isn't just a co-parenting covenant. You need to cultivate the emotional, romantic, and sexual dynamic in your relationship. Now, interestingly, after making a very practical and compelling argument as to why adultery should be avoided and how it can be avoided, the father now lands this poem with a reminder of divine judgment. Look at verse 21. He says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. I like how Bruce Walkey summarizes this section. He says, behind all the utilitarian arguments, there is ultimately a religious reason, the omniscient Lord upholds a moral order wherein sin brings its own punishment with it. A person reaps what he sows. I think that's important for us to see. In essence, the Father says to the Son, you can walk this road because it is wise and because it leads to happy and positive outcomes, or you can walk this road because God is holy and he is watching Over every single step that you take in your life, the choice is yours. In his commentary, David Atkinson here speaks about the law of moral providence. I think that's a very useful category. What he's saying is that God has designed the physical, moral, and social universe to reward certain behaviors and to punish certain behaviors. So the reckoning for bad decisions will begin in this life and will be brought to conclusion in the life to come. So there really is no compelling argument for coloring outside the lines with respect to human sexuality. The universe will punish you in the here and now. And if those sins are unrepented of, then the judge of the universe will punish you in the world to come. That's the message that the father's trying to get across here. He's making a strong case. He's saying, walk on the path that leads to life, my son. It is the path that leads to happiness now. And if you walk it in faith, then it is the path that will lead to happiness later as well. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for any of the word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.